a Muslim leader in South Thailand said this to a man who was a missionary there called Martin Goldsmith for a number of years. He said, this book has the ring of truth. And Goldsmith, um, he was commenting on the Malay New Testament, which Goldsmith had given him some weeks before. He said, I gladly agreed with, with this man before asking him on what basis he'd come to this conclusion. Uh, he said, the genealogy at the beginning of the book verifies its truth. Um, and that's the case with so many uh, cultures still around the world. We kind of yawn and think, oh my gosh, this is such a snoozer. But um, certainly, it's the case today still for so many. It tells us who Jesus is. It reminds us that he entered space-time as a human. He's not just an idea. He's not just a legend. Not at all. He, was, he actually became one of us. And here's his family line. And it's, it's detailed. It's documented in detail. Excuse me. Um, and it was certainly the case in the Jewish community that Jesus was born into at this time 2,000 years ago, to have this genealogy really verified. Okay, this, this guy, this is where he came from. We've traced it. We can trace it. It tells us a whole bunch of stuff. Um, the, uh, Goldsmith goes on to write, while many Europeans and Americans find genealogy somewhat tedious, to say the least, the Malay culture in South Thailand understands the individual in light of their society and family background. To determine who a person is, one needs to know their parents and who their forebears were. Um, so more than just a list, a laundry list of names, hey, this, this happens to be who Jesus came from, this is a, Matthew wants us to understand, and we'll see this clearly, hopefully, this is a theological document. Um, it leaves names out. It's not comprehensive. That's normal. It's like a resume. A, a genealogy was like an ancient resume. It's what you, gave some, what you gave your employer, in a sense. Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's who I am. Um, so in your resume, you don't include all the, all, everything. You, pick, you really pick the highlights. And uh, that's, that's exactly what Matthew's done here. It's not an exhaustive list, but he's telling us something, again, about who Jesus is and why he came. Um, one commentator says, The book of the origin of Jesus Christ far from being simply the recitation of historical data for their own sake, is above all an artistically devised theological statement. The data are important in providing the vehicle for the initial presentation of Jesus as the fulfillment, okay? He is the fulfillment. Here's what Matthew's saying, among other things, of all of the promises uh, to the world, really, but through the world to the Jews in particular that come, that pass through Abraham and David who are prominent figures, who are highlights in this genealogy. So four things to break it down for you that we're going to hit that this ancient resume tells us. First of all, who Jesus is, how he came, who he came for, and then what he came to do. So first, who Jesus is. This genealogy tells us who Jesus is. And in short, it tells us that he's a king for all, but that he's also the king of all. So let me break that down for you. First of all, he's the king for all. It's clear Matthew was a Jew, and he was writing predominantly to Jews. Um, and whereas Luke, for instance, was writing predominantly to Gentiles, part of the reason that what he says sounds different, even his, even his genealogy sounds a bit different, uh, traces a different line. Um, but to say that, to trace this genealogy through Abraham and to put his name in such a prominent place was a sort of a banner way of saying 
Jesus was a true Jew. Um, and, and, and salvation for the world, Messiah, the promised one who's going to come and save us from our sins and really start the process of recreating everything, was, was going to come through the Jewish people. He was going to be a Jew. So this is one way that Matthew's saying he is Messiah. And he puts Abraham in this prominent place. If, um, one of the favorite things of, they didn't have highlighters, they didn't underline in the ancient text, so one way they would do that instead was by position in the text. And there's one positional sort of um, device called a chiasm that, that the Hebrews would use. And Matthew does this here. If you look, he puts Abraham right in the, in the center of the chiasm, which is a way of highlighting it or underscoring Abraham and saying, this is the bullseye. If this whole genealogy is a, is a target, Abraham's the bullseye. So if you look at verse 1, the book of the genealogy, 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, 2, the son of Abraham, 3. Okay? And then if you read through the genealogy, he hits he hits Abraham next, and then he goes out to David, and then he finishes with Jesus Christ. So you have Jesus Christ, David, Abraham, and then Abraham immediately again, bullseye. Abraham, David, out to Jesus Christ. So this is one way that he's sort of taking the ancient highlighter and saying, Abraham is at the center of this story. Jesus Christ came from the father of the faith. Um, Notice that, too, it's not an emphasis on Moses, to whom the Pharisees and the Sadducees and many at that time looked sort of as the paradigm, and Moses was so important in the history of the Jews and to us. But through Moses, we get the law. Abraham, however, came 400 years before Moses, and Paul makes a point of saying that he was declared righteous before the law came, way before the law came. In Genesis 15, 6 and elsewhere, God says, it says that God considered or declared or accounted Abraham as righteousness. Why? Because he did a bunch of stuff and obeyed the law? No, he didn't have a law. Because he trusted that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. I'm going to give you a child and through you I'm going to bless everything. Abraham believed God and God credited it to him, Genesis 15, 6, as righteousness. Has anything changed? No. Jesus said in John 8, Abraham saw my day. He didn't, maybe he didn't see as clearly as we do, but he looked ahead and he saw that Jesus is the ultimate word of God. Jesus is the final and complete promise who makes sense of the whole Old Testament, all of its promises through Abraham and David and others. And Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And, and so the fact that, Moses, that Matthew is emphasizing Abraham here and putting him in the bullseye, he is saying this Messiah has come. Not to say, okay, now I'm a second Moses, and uh, you guys better obey this, 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 and this, and this, and anyone who does, you're in. No. He's the son of Abraham, the greater son. And like Abraham, he is going to say, look, faith is the way to come to God. In fact, I am that way. I've come to be the way for you to God. So anyone, and this is another thing that I want to make clear that Matthew does make clear here that I want to unpack, but anyone can come, sinner, righteous, man, woman, Jew, Gentile. Jesus, this Jewish Messiah through Abraham has come for everybody through faith in the promise of God, which is Jesus and Jesus only. So he's, he's king for all, but he's also king of all. Uh, if you look at verse 2, uh, it mentions Right away, Matthew mentions that Jesus is the son of Judah. He says, 
quote, he's the son of Judah and his brothers. Okay, if you've read the Old Testament, if you've read Genesis, the Joseph story, the end of Genesis, the last 13 or 14 chapters, Genesis 38 especially features Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob from whom the 12 tribes came. To say Judah and his brothers is a huge understatement. Um, because he's saying Messiah came from Judah and his brothers. Yeah, yeah, there was Judah and his brothers, but Messiah came from Judah, that, that fourth child. Okay, so he just sort of says, Judah, yeah, and he had brothers too. He just, he just not wrote off the rest of the tribes, but he's featuring Judah in a really sort of a huge understatement. Um, also peculiar is that Judah, in this culture where the first, you know, primogeniture and the first often got the double portion and kept the family together and was the blessed one, Judah was the fourth in line. He was the fourth in line. And this is so often in the Old Testament, the way that God works, and he continues to work this way. He blesses those who are surprised by the blessing. He doesn't go to the, the first and the most powerful, although he will save anyone, first, last, middle. But he, also, he, often, go, he often flips the tables on us, and in this case, he certainly does. There's a, there's a verse toward the end of Genesis. Jacob is at the end of his life, and he's speaking blessing over his sons. And he gets to Judah, the fourth, who was, I'll get to this, notoriously sinful in a one particular way in his life. Genesis 49, verse 10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So Judah, the fourth in line, was looked to for millennia, centuries and centuries before the coming of Jesus as we think that the Messiah is coming from the tribe of Judah. And lo and behold, Matthew says, yeah, Jesus has come from this tribe. Um, he also says not only is he the son of Judah, but he's the son of David. Not, he doesn't say he's the son of Mary or the son of Joseph. He says he's the son of David. This isn't just an ancestral point. It's a messianic title. Son of David is a messianic title. The, the blind man on the road to uh, Jericho, he, he cry, what does he cry out? Jesus of Nazareth, son of David. Uh, have mercy on me. He's not just saying, yeah, I know who your grand, 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 granddaddy was. He's saying, I believe you are the promised one, the one who's going to come and make all things new. I believe. Um, and, and the promises that were given to David were these, that his reign... In the Old Testament, okay, the, the son of David, the one in the line of David, his reign would be both unending, it would never end, and his reign would be total. It would be complete over all of the earth, total dominion. So Isaiah 9, 7, the verse after the one I read at the Advent wreath, it says, of the increase of his government, this is talking about Messiah, and of, the, and of peace, there will be, what, no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, covenant promise of unending kingship. He says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Also, Psalms 2, Psalm 110, and others talk about the complete terrestrial and cosmic reign of this son in the line of David. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, who is this Jesus? Who is this one who has come after 400 years of silence, after exile before that, deportation, devastation, and then return, but not to its former glory, and then 400 years of not a single word from God. Who is this guy? This word that Matthew gives us, here's who he is, okay? He's this kind of king. 
Um, okay, so that's who Jesus is. Now, the genealogy also tells us, as I said, it tells us how Jesus came. Okay, it tells us how Jesus came. And in a word, sinlessly. Jesus came sinlessly. He was born, what, of a virgin. Not from Joseph and Mary, like the rest of us, born from parents, father, mother, uh, but from Mary. If you read verse 16, if you look at verse 16 carefully, it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, and in fact, wasn't husband yet, but he was betrothed, and in that culture, if you were betrothed, you were essentially considered married, okay? Couldn't consummate yet, but it was binding, all right, which is why it says when Joseph found out she was pregnant, he was going to divorce her secretly. If I'm engaged to somebody now, I don't have to divorce them, I just say, it's serious, but here it was very serious. So he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, what? Of whom Jesus was born. Of Mary. Um, the Greek text, the verb that you see in this entire litany of names, this whole ancient resume is genao. It's repeated over and over again. It's actually a verb. In the ESV, if you have that, it says the father of, the father of, blank was the father of blank, blank was the father of blank. And I'm having flashbacks to Brooks's excellent reading, you know, all these names. Um, but it's always through the father, but it's actually fathered, or the King James says begat. How many, I mean, break that word out at a next cocktail party, um, and there will be a strange silence, just like there was just now. So the, the King James says begat, but, but we would say fathered, blank, fathered, blank. That whole begat train just stops, completely stops in verse 16. Jesus was not begat by Mary or by Joseph, or by Mary and Joseph. It says what? Joseph was the husband to Mary, and Jesus was born, passive verb, of Mary. It's passive. Uh, it's a divine passive, is what the commentators like to call it. Joseph didn't beget anyone. Jesus was begotten by the Father who is in heaven, the Father of all mankind, as Paul tells us in Acts 17. Um, God himself. He's making a clear linguistic and an and a, astonishing point here. Um, but little sidebar, Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus, and he was the one who was the heir of David. Um, Luke, it seems like, traces Mary's line. And so the legal line in this culture was passed down through the father. And get this, um, Jesus' adoption by Joseph through his justice and his compassion and his in Joseph's faith was counted sufficient by God to give Jesus this legal status as David's heir. So I think that this is a powerful word to all adopted children, to all parents who have adopted, that God looks at your adoption as strong enough, as legitimate enough as a biological connection with father or with mother. And thank God he does, because we who have trusted in Christ have been adopted by God the Father through the merit of Christ alone into his family. And we are accounted as full status sons and daughters. Theological just gems in this seemingly dry litany of names. J. Gresham Machen, an old Princeton scholar who was, he was at Princeton and they started going with the culture and denying the scriptures and so he, he saw that and he said, I'm out. And he went and started a new seminary that's it's called Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, 
And, he, and, and this was during a time of neo-orthodoxy, which basically people would sort of wiggle around things that the Bible said were true and, and sort of profess that they believed them, but they were trying, they really didn't. They would find out later that they didn't. And so they were trying to find a, a sort of a litmus test for, do you believe what the scriptures say? Are you orthodox? Um, and he came up with this question. He sort of reduced it to this question. Do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God was the, and is the father of this man who was born through Mary alone and who was actually entered space and time to represent us, to live in our place and to die in our place and to rise in our place and to reign in our place, who remains a man today, fully man and fully God. It says a lot. Um, the, a professor of nanotechnology at Rice here in town who's, who's alive and well, as far as I know, Jim Tour, he asks a similar question to, uh, I was going to say, you know, unlucky folks on the plane. No, they're, they're blessed to sit next to him. But he, he'll pop this question whenever, I mean, he's a gospel warrior. He just goes and talk, just brings up Christ in all of his conversation. And uh, he asks a similar question. Do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ to find out exactly what this person sitting next to him believes? It's a, it's a similar litmus test, the physicality, the humanness. If Christ didn't take on our flesh as a sinless person, not born of Joseph through whom sin would have been passed through the father line, but born of Mary, truly human, but with God as father, truly God, fully human, fully God, ably representing us as a human, because only a human can represent a human, but able also to save us, because only God can do that. Our salvation hangs on the virgin birth, on the historical, factual, entered space-time, almost exactly I'm really bad at math. 2,000 years ago. Over. Over. Aha. Um, yes, over. His death isn't, we haven't quite gotten there yet. But um, to save us, to, to ably represent us, um, to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve. Um, Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the church fathers, says that he said this. He says, what is not assumed is not healed. In other words, what, isn't, what wasn't taken up, assumed, what wasn't taken up by Christ isn't healed. Any part of us that he did not represent is lost, which is why it's so important that we believe what Matthew is saying. He was not begat by Joseph or by Joseph and Mary. He was born of Mary with Joseph as his adoptive father, okay, uh, with God as his true father. So truly human but without sin. The point is this. Um, Jesus came sinlessly to be sin for us. Because where does Matthew finish up? He, he's making a point here of the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. He came truly as a human to represent us, to live a life for us as Messiah in the line of Abraham and David. But where does he finish? What's the trajectory of his book, which we'll get to? He starts here. Jesus was born sinless, but he finishes with a cross. Jesus came for one reason, to die. He was born to die. That was his mission. He told his disciples over and over, so it has to be. I must go to Jerusalem, for in Jerusalem all the prophets are killed. That's, my, that's why I came. It's my mission to save you, to live in your place, to die in your place, to rise in your place, to reign in your place, to return again and gather you to myself and make all things new. That's where, that's where Matthew's heading. That's what he's saying here. Jesus was born to die. I want to read just a stanza from the hymn, What Child Is This? 
says this, Why lies he in such mean estate, or such low estate, where ox and lamb are feeding? Good Christians fear, for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of man. He came to die. So that's how he came. He came sinless on mission for us. The genealogy also tells us not only how he came, who he was, how he came, but also who he came for. I think this is probably the most fascinating bit and really sort of like the guts to me of what Matthew's telling us. So here we go. This genealogy also tells us who Jesus came for. Um, and the fact is, in short, he came for sinners and the marginalized. So he came for, I'm going to break it down into three categories, sinners, Gentiles, and women. Okay, one, co- one commentator says, this is something that no respectable Jewish genealogy or resume would have included. Any of these things. I know that sounds offensive. I'm going to explain it. Okay, it is offensive. In this culture, to include sinners, notorious sinners, all these people are sinners, they're all people, broken, fallen, deserving of hell, deserving of God's judgment, but notorious, any Jew that was reading this, this would have been like an ancient highlighter, these things that I'm saying that I'm about to unfold for you, popped out and gone, this person, it's documented in our holy book, in the Hebrew Bible, God's very word to us, this person is known for one thing, sin, sinners, Gentiles, and women, all three very prominent in Jesus' resume, broadcast here at the beginning of the new covenant for us to tell us something about who Jesus came for. So sinners, first of all, if you look at Judah, we've talked about Judah, he, among other things, basically left the promised land, married a Canaanite, had some sons, married a Canaanite, not a, you know, not a Jew, not one of the promised people, married a Canaanite with whom they weren't supposed to mix, and then broke some promises and threw a laundry list of things that happened. Um, he ended up having twins through his daughter-in-law who dressed up like a prostitute to seduce him. And it, it was even worse than that. If you want to check it out, go read Genesis 38. It's all there, black and white. So that's Judah, okay, who is the one that is the fourth in line from Jacob through whom the king is going to come, the Messiah. So there he is, prominent in verse 2. In verse 3, you have Tamar. She was the one that he impregnated who dressed up like a whore to seduce him, uh, who was his daughter-in-law. And she had Perez and, uh, sorry, it's, uh, yeah, Perez and, and Zerah. I believe Christ came through Perez. Uh, Rahab, in verse 5, she was a prostitute. You might have expected that, based on what I've already said. She was a prostitute in Jericho. When the, when the Israelites entered the promised land after 40 years of wilderness, they came into Jericho and they took Jericho. And she was the one that helped them get into Jericho. And she trusted in God and in his word. And she showed herself righteous thereby. She's in the, she's in the list of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. So she was a prostitute. Bathsheba, um, I've done a little bit of research on this. And there's a Middle Eastern scholar who also grew up in the Middle East. He's, he's a Westerner, but he's really, he really grew up in the Middle East and um, reads all sorts. He's a polyglot, reads all, and speaks all sorts of languages. Um, but he says that when, when uh, the name Bathsheba is not in here. Um, but when he mentions in verse 6 Bathsheba, what does he say? 
um, Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even say her name. Ken Bailey thinks that he doesn't say her name because he's so disgusted with her that basically, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern culture, he argues that she knew exactly what she was doing when she was bathing naked on top of her roof and right inside of the palace, and so she was somehow complicit. I don't know. I'm not, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't push all my chips into that interpretation, but I would say he knows more than I do, and that's not, he's not alone in that scholarly opinion. So there's a bit of a taint even right there to the name, and, and you know, then David took her to himself. She was the wife of one of his best friends, one of his 30 guards, who was like his 30 mighty men who did all the frontline fighting for him. And then he had her husband killed when he found out that he'd impregnated her. So it's, it's a horrible, if you want to read about that, it's in 1 Samuel 11, and then David's confrontation and confession in 1 Samuel 12. But, uh, 2 Samuel, excuse me. Um, <clears throat> but that's Bathsheba. He says, I don't even think, I think Matthew just so doesn't like her, he can't even say her name. Just wife of Uriah the Hittite. I think it's so that we don't miss the fact, he's highlighting again, that David sinned here. Like David, remember, she was the wife of another person. He's sort of reminding us of this whole story around Bathsheba. And, and David took her for himself and offended God thereby. But God blessed, blessed her child, Solomon. And, and, and through that, we, are, we have the Messiah who, who, who has come to save us. So also, if you look at like verse 10, Manasseh, uh, he was like, if I could say the wickedest, as they would say in Britain, he was maybe the most wicked, the wickedest sin in Israel's history. Um, he was a notoriously sinful king. Jeconiah in verse 11 was uh, apparently so bad that, again, Jesus biologically didn't come through this line, but so bad that uh, God just said, um, I, nobody else in your line is going to sit on the throne. So just some terrible, terrible sinners. Um, Matthew was a tax collector before Jesus called him from his occupation to follow him. He just came by one day and said, follow me. And Matthew left his table. And tax collectors were despised by the Jews as traitors and thieves. So Matthew felt the impact of Jesus' having come, especially for the profligate, for the untouchables, for those on the fringes, for notorious sinners. And also, so he came for sinners. He also came for Gentiles. That much is very clear. Tamar was a Gentile. A Canaanite, perhaps. Um, Rahab from Jericho, Canaanite. Ruth was from Moabite, and it said that a Moabite could never enter the temple of God to be with God in his presence. Um, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, she was likely Hittite, likely not Jewish as well. Um, so Gentiles couldn't come into the inner courts of the temple. But Matthew's telling us Jesus came to save, through the Jews, to save all people not just Jews, all people. Um, and finally, women, the most offensive thing I've said so far, like, you know, it's a, you know no, no respectable ancient resume would have included women. What? Um, my old New Testament professor, Mike Kruger, he says, he says, see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Again, he goes out of his way to mention Uzziah here, um, Uriah, I don't know why I put Uzziah, um, Uriah here, lest we forget, doesn't even mention her name, Bathsheba. Crass, he's airing Jesus' lineage as dirty laundry. The dirty laundry of the Old Testament. He's calling David a dirty sinner and an adulterer, basically. Uh, in this day, you don't mention women in genealogies, Kruger goes on to say. All but Ruth are immoral women. All of them are Gentile women. 
Um, and these are just uh, the highlights again. Uh, Michael Green, so Matthew's po- he's purposely picking these things out. Michael Green, another commentator, he says, a number of women, long, only long quote here, so, but I think it's worth it, so stay tuned. I mean, tune in. He says, a number of women figure in this genealogy. That might seem, not seem strange in today's climate, but it was a startling in a Jewish genealogy. In both Greek and Jewish culture, a woman had no legal rights. Not saying this is good, it's not good. And not saying this is what the Old Testament proscribed, it didn't. Prescribed, rather, it did not. But it had been perverted to this sort of way in, in the culture that Jesus was born into. A woman had no legal rights. She could not inherit property or give testimony in a court of law. These are just facts. She was completely under her husband's power. She was seen less as a person than as a thing, he says. The Jewish man thanked God each day that he had not been created a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And yet here are four women in Jesus' genealogy. And what women, Green goes on to say, Tamar was an adulteress, Rahab was a prostitute from pagan Jericho, Uriah's wife Bathsheba was the woman David had seduced and whose first child had died, but through whose subsequent son Solomon the royal line was traced. Ruth was not even a Jewess at all, but a Moabitess, and Moabites and their descendants were not allowed near the assembly of the Lord. These are the women introduced in the genealogy to prepare us for the climax of them all, Mary. Matthew could not have found a more amazing selection of women wherever he had looked within the pages of the Bible. Why did he choose them? Here at the outset of the gospel, Matthew goes out of his way, okay, he's doing this on purpose, to show that the barriers between men and women are broken down. Again, this is a theological document. Matthew's telling us stuff about who Jesus came for. They're broken down. Women share in the official genealogy of the Messiah alongside men. The barriers between Gentiles and Jews are broken down. Ruth plays her part in the coming of one who was to be not only Messiah of Israel, but Savior of the whole world. And the juxtaposition of sinful women like Bathsheba and Tamar with Mary, the gentle mother of Jesus, whom Jesus chose, think about this, as his mother on earth. Wow. What a righteous woman. Um, What a woman of faith. It shows that the barriers between good people and bad people have also come crashing down. As Paul put it, there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, what? This glorious word, freely by his grace, which means his work for us on our behalf. Romans 3, 22 and 24, through 24. At the very beginning of the gospel, the all-embracing love of God is emphasized. Nothing, Green says, nothing can stand in its way. There is nobody who does not need it. Again, my New Testament professor, he says, the point is this, Christ came for the sinner, the common the lost, such as those from whom he came. Behold your Savior, born in a barn, asleep in a feed trough. This is Christ the Lord. This is who the angels sang about. This is who we celebrate today. This is who came to save us. Finally, Matthew's genealogy tells us uh, what Jesus came to do. Okay? who he came for, but finally, what he came to do. Again, all he came to fulfill the Old Testament, first of all. Just two sub-points here. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. All in this genealogy points to Abraham and David. Jesus is their direct descendant and heir, and he fulfills all the Old Testament promises to God's people and to creation, therefore, through, through them. 
through Abraham and David. Genesis 12.3, when God first calls Abram to leave Ur, where he probably worshipped the moon god Nana, uh, right along the Tigris, I believe it was. He, he, he marches over the Fertile Crescent, stops for a while, thinks it's all right, and then, and then loses his dad and then has to keep going all the way down to Canaan. And in Genesis 12.3, it says, the promise that God gave to Abraham was not just to bless Israel, his progeny, but to bless through him all families of the earth. From the start of the Jewish people, the promise was to bless everyone through Abram, through the Jews. So that's, um, in short, a lot left out, but how he came to fulfill the Old Testament, but also Jesus came to set us free. And this is what I'm going to finish with. Jesus came to set us free. If you look at Matthew 117, um, he gives us a summary of everything he's just said. He recaps it for us. And he says this. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to, to the Christ, the Messiah, 14 generations. Um, in other words, he just says 14. So this is a bit of a, it's a contested point, but I, I, think it, I think it's there. But it is contested. He might not be saying this. But it's three 14s. It's also six sevens. Okay? Six of uh, seven generations. Six, six pairs of those. Uh, precede Messiah. Precede Jesus and lead us to him. Um, as the sort of the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. So Jesus is therefore what? He's the seventh. He's the beginning of the seventh seven. Okay? You're like, So? That's not helpful. Um, well, if you look back, and again, Matthew is totally steeped in the Old Testament. He's saying over and over, Jesus is the consummation. He is the promise that the Old Testament's screaming. He is the thing it's been pointing us to. Not only the, not only the text, but actually the history. Jesus is the reason for all space and time. He's the reason that God has orchestrated history the way he has. He's the convergence point. The Bible starts with all creation, narrows to Abram and Abraham, and then for that point on, focuses on Israel, a family that grows into a nation, all the way through the entire rest of the Old Testament. When it gets down to Jesus, it gets down to one person right here, one Messiah, one person. And from Jesus, what, what is the book of Acts? What are the epistles about? The gospel goes out. The church goes out into all the world. Jesus is the, he's the linchpin of history, not just of a text. He's the narrow point of an hourglass turned on its side, as it were. He, he is the convergence point. And he came to set us free. So if you look at um, Leviticus, for instance, there's a thing called the year of Jubilee. If you keep in mind this seven sevens. In the law, okay, there were re regular periods of rest that were appointed for us. Um, every seventh day, we we're given the Sabbath rest. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Every seventh year, the Israelites were to rest that year and not to work and not to plant, but to eat the produce of the years that they'd stored up, and God would bless that. So every seventh day, Every seventh year, they were, to, they were to rest and not work like they normally did. And then every seventh seven of, of years, so every 49th year is like an, after that 49th year, the seventh seven of years, was to be like an uber rest or an ultra rest, um, an ultra Sabbath. And it was called in Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee. And here's what it was. Let me just read it. It says, you shall count, well, I'm not going to read it. It's in Leviticus 25, and for the sake of time, let me just tell you, in the year of Jubilee, 
If anybody was in debt, it was canceled. If anybody had lost their land to sell their land in order to get out of debt, it was given back to them. All bonds broken, everyone set free. Everything returns back. Okay, total freedom, prosperity restored, property restored. Um, this was the year of Jubilee, and Matthew is telling us, I think, okay, this was all in preparation for Jesus Christ. His advent, his coming, announces that the real Jubilee has, it, it has been inaugurated. It has be, it has, this is the guy that is actually going to bring us that rest, that property, that substance, that shalom, that peace, that wholeness that we're all searching for, that we've all been searching for all of our lives. It's this hole, this gaping, yawning chasm inside of us. He has come to bring us rest on the inside and rest on the outside. And the thing about Jesus is that he wasn't crucified because he came and said, hey, I've come to bring you the government's going to be on my shoulders, but I'm going to decimate the government. I'm going to destroy the, Roman, the Romans. who are. I'm going to give you geopolitical peace. That's what almost everybody thought Messiah was going to do. He came and he said, actually, no. I'm not really concerned about that. I'm concerned about bringing you, making, making peace the peace that matters. The, I, I, I'm concerned about, about waging war against your true enemy way worse than the Romans. You, actually. The resident evil in you, the sin that is a cancer that is eating your body and your soul and is the reason you die and will go to hell had I not come. I've come to destroy sin and death and Satan and hell, and I'm going to take it upon myself. And man, when, when homie comes along and I want him to save me from outside oppression and he says, actually, that's not the problem you are, you're that bad, and you'll see that when I go to the cross, man, that is so offensive that we crucified him. And he used that to save us. And he used that to save us. And he is the only way to peace. That's it. But he is the prince of peace. He comes to give us peace with his father, peace with God, rest. Do you know that kind of rest? If you don't know Jesus, friend, let me tell you, you don't. You may think you do, but you don't. You were made for it, and only through Jesus can you be, can you find it? Can you be restored? Can you be reconciled to the maker of your soul? I pray that this and this book and this time together through this wonderful gospel would help us to recapture some of the wonder of the fact that God became one of us to save us. Not just in his death, but in all of his life, in his birth, in his full obedience to the Father from the heart in his death and his resurrection. Let me, let me pray, and then let's celebrate communion together. Father, I thank you for being so far beyond us that even though the whole Old Testament not only predicted, but um, not only predicted Messiah, Jesus, but but through it, the contours of history uh, set it up in such a way that it, that, it, that it foretold him. It was a sort of type of, of him. Israel coming out of, um, coming out of Egypt, two million plus people, passing through the Red Sea. And Matthew tells us later in, in his book, actually, that, that was all done 
to foreshadow uh, Christ, who, who, who's actually the true Israel, the true Son of God. Lord, all of space-time history. We, and yet, it was so crazy that you became, your son, your very son, became a baby, born for, to love us to death. That we, we, we were blind to it and we crucified him. Lord, such is the wonder of what you've done. And it's not like you've, you, you've stopped operating in a way that we can't understand. You still do that. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and hearts to, to trust you, to trust your word over our feelings, over even what our mind may be telling us, our rationale, to subject our minds, our bodies, our emotions, our affections, and our will to you and your revelation, which is Jesus Christ. We give you all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.